The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. It's time to open up the Bible together, and if you haven't yet, stretch out your hand for a copy of the Scriptures as we open up to Genesis and chapter 18, starting chapter 18 uh, this Lord's Day. And uh, we have been working through since chapter 12 in the year 2019 about the narrative of the faith of our Father, the life of Abraham, and we've seen Abraham through many seasons, and uh, today we get a, a further telling of the story, a further understanding of God's purposes and what he is doing in Abraham's life and why it matters so much for us as Christians in the 21st century. But uh, as you're turning there or if you've already uh, got yourself there, uh, back on the 25th of this month, there was an opinion piece in the New York Times that was written by a San Diego State philosophy professor. And uh, that opinion piece, this contributing article was called A God Problem. A God problem. And it was a very short article, uh, but uh, it was quite the, a punchy little thing. But the, the brief idea here, this brief summary of this article called A God Problem, was that the idea of God, the concept of God, makes no sense. It is not intelligible and suggests that thinking about God or faith in God means that faith is necessarily the enemy of reason and clear-thinking intellectualism. That if you try to think about God, you actually cannot think about God because he does not exist, and so therefore to think about what which does not exist is not logical, not reasonable. That was essentially the article. It was an opinion piece. <laughs> Uh, what was interesting about it, though, was that uh, even if at the end of the day, the conclusion is obviously hostile to biblical Christianity, uh, there were some alternative ideas of God presented in that that I think are actually alluring for Christian people to kind of catch hold of and think of, well, no, this is how I think about God. The whole point of the article was to debunk the idea of God, but along the way it suggested a few things. But one of the suggested ways that people think about God oftentimes, which is actually very popular in the world today, is this idea that if God exists, and I'm willing to concede in that fantastic reality that he does exist, he's way out there and has nothing to do with me. So there is a concession to the thought that, okay, if God exists, he's out there and away from me and he's got nothing to do with my life. He's got nothing to do with my daily living and my individual realities and all the rest. He's out there somewhere. Uh, that is the popular idea that we call deism. That God exists, he's just out there. And actually this uh, takes its form in this popular argument called uh, the clockmaker argument. The idea that God is out there somewhere and he's like a clockmaker who makes this fantastic clock, winds it up, and then walks away and lets it run. God is out there but uninvolved. He made it, but he left it to run on its own. Only every once in a while, maybe checking on its status or winding it back up. But the idea of a God with limited involvement. And so if you're, if you're placing a spectrum of views about religion and, and, and God, there are those who say, no, God doesn't exist at all. And there are those moving this way on the spectrum who perhaps say, well, if he's out there somewhere, I guess he exists, but he doesn't have anything to do with me. This limited concept of God, limited involvement. Some people balk at this idea of his over-involvement. 
But the idea of a personal God, the idea who comes and speaks in his word, who reveals himself to us that we might know him, who draws us close that we might know him as he reveals his knowledge about us, that is a concept that many people say that can't be true because their view of God is totally impersonal. He doesn't rule over me in any meaningful way. He's out there, but he has nothing to do with my life. So said the famous 19th century philosopher, Bette Midler, in 1990, God is watching us. He's watching us. He is watching us from a distance, okay? This idea that God is just far away. And you say, what does this have to do with Genesis 18? Well, in one sense, yes, it's true. God is out there and, and distant. We, we call that his transcendence, if you want the, the fancy word for it. God is transcendent. He transcends. He reigns over the highest things and goes deeper than all the depths. He is over all things. He transcends our minds. He is bigger than we can possibly comprehend. He is out there and far away. And yet he is also not just transcendent, but he is also, we use this word, imminent. He's also near. This God that is on the one hand transcendent and glorious and exalted is also near to us, that he knows us, that he is a personal God. He is not an impersonal God. He reveals himself to us that we might know him, that we might know his name, that we might know what pleases him. And this idea of a personal, imminent God that we can know is seemingly fantastic to a world that says, no, God, if he's even out there at all, he doesn't care. Genesis has been telling us just the opposite, hasn't it? That this world that God has made with these people in this world is a world that God actually cares about, that he has entered into for the purposes of redeeming what we have destroyed. The Bible is all about God's work of salvation that he is working out throughout time and history to bring about this wonderful purpose to redeem a human race. God is not far off and away and unknown to us. He is known. And we see that together in Genesis 18. But first, let's pray. And we will hear God's word together in Genesis 18. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. And as we have them open before us, we remember that we are wonderfully resourced to have the Bible in our own language that we can read and understand. We pray, Lord, that we would not forsake these blessings by, by casting off the scriptures to some dusty bookshelf, but that we would be a people of your word, attentive, willing to obey, longing to know more and grow deeper in who you are, for you are a God who has revealed yourself and you reveal yourself to us principally here in the scriptures. And so, Lord, come now in the power of your spirit to reveal yourself to us that we might know you, that we might serve you, that we might worship you in spirit and truth. And so, Lord, come, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now hear God's word in, in Genesis chapter 18, and we're looking at the first 15 verses here. Genesis 18, 1 to 15. This is the word of God. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, and as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, 
If I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour and knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever and ever. So may he write its eternal truth upon our hearts. And... Uh, Genesis 18 comes with a number of very important questions that, uh, that I think we can try to seek to answer somewhat. But really, I want us to see Genesis 18 just under two points. And uh, you'll see it if you've got the outline there. Just two main points. First, in verses 1 to 8, this idea of friendship. Friendship with the Lord. And then in verses 9 through 15, foolishness. Friendship and foolishness. Uh, this, is, this is a text that I think gives us a lot of background details, and I want us to understand it according to its culture. There are a lot of underpinnings culturally here in this text, and in order for us to be aware of what Abraham is doing and how we're supposed to read this text to understand not only what Abraham is doing, but in a greater sense what God is doing, we want to understand that cultural reality uh, quickly here. So first of all, just notice in verse 1 that this is noontime. It says it's the heat of the day, the middle of the day. And in these cultures, in these uh, desert-type climates and desert cultures, the middle of the day is nap time. Uh, because why would you want to be out in the heat of the day working when you could sleep at that time and work later when it's cooler? But nevertheless, Abraham is up. So it would have been the time for Abraham to be conveniently asleep, but rather than asleep, he is actually furiously active. Do you notice how the tone of the text has this kind of uh, furious tone to it? What we're told is that, verse 2, uh, Abraham sees three men approaching him, and he runs out to meet them and welcomes them and petitions them to receive his hospitality. Uh, in verse 3, it says, uh, and said, O Lord, uh, which could actually be translated as uh, sirs. Uh, this is not necessarily the greeting of deity. It is an honorable designation of title. 
uh, my lord, sirs. He, Abraham is rushing out to meet these honored guests, and he wants them to come and receive his hospitality, and he is petitioning them to do that. Now, this gracious hospitality that Abraham is so intent to offer, the fact that he runs out to meet them. Now, this might just be a passing detail here, uh, but Middle Eastern men, culturally, do not run. Why? Because it is undignified. Uh, running around presents this idea of scurried hurrying that you don't have your wits about you. Middle Eastern men don't run, but Abraham runs out to meet them. And uh, that should hopefully call to your mind a picture in the Gospel of Luke of a prodigal son's father running to meet him quickly, by the way. But the point here is that culturally speaking, the attitude was, you, you don't you don't experience me rushing to you. You come to me. I'm the dignified person. You come to me. But rather, Abraham is running out. It shows this intense attitude of grace and compassion and kindness. He brings out water so they can wash their feet and rest their feet and then promises them, do you see what it says? A morsel of bread, verse 5. I'm going to bring you a morsel of bread. And when you hear morsel, you think, you know, just a little piece. When Abraham says morsel, he has something else in mind. He has a feast. Notice what he says. It's a wonderful feast, and he's going to make it fast. So he's run out to them in verse 2. In verse 6, he runs quickly back to his own tent. Sarah makes some food, makes some bread. We've got guests coming. And then in verse 7, rushes to the herd and tells one of his young men to make the calf quickly. Verse 8, it's all ready. And then in verse 9, you can almost picture Abraham there perhaps catching his breath because he's done that flight of the bumblebee thing you do when you get unexpected guests and you go to pick up things to make sure they don't see it, right? He's catching his breath, standing under the tree while they eat, taking the posture of a servant. So I receive you in gracious hospitality to my home, and rather than sit with you, I'll stand by to attend to your needs as the gracious host. And, and that is, on the one hand, the immediate point of what this first part of chapter 18 is saying that Abraham is a gracious host, that reveals his disposition of charitable kindness to people who are otherwise strangers to him. He doesn't know these men, but he receives them graciously. Men who Abraham knows, not at all, but yet receives them with wonderful hospitality. But there is, there's a story in the story, and these are really where the questions start to come about. Because in verse 1, we're clued into the fact that in some way that we're trying to understand, one of these three men is who, verse 1, the Lord himself. Verse 1 says, and the Lord appeared to Abraham, him, by the oaks. But what Abraham sees is he lifts up his eyes in verse 2 is just three men. Now, it is important, actually, that we see this detail that he is by the oaks because this is not the first time that we have seen this particular region. The oaks is where Abraham had been living all these years in Canaan. If you remember back in chapter 13 when Abraham and Lot were having somewhat of a dispute about where are we going to stay and Abraham allows Lot to have his choice of the land and, and Lot goes out east towards Sodom. 
and that's going to come about later on in, in this narrative. Uh, and, and Abraham told Lot, you can have your land. I'll keep what the Lord has given to me. And Abraham settles by these oaks at this particular place. And back in chapter 13, at the end of that chapter, we were told that in this place, Abraham has settled his home and built an altar. Because it is here in this location that Abraham has approached the Lord in worship. And now, where Abraham had come to the Lord in worship, the Lord has now come to him. Notice, and this is the most, one of the most exquisite points of this text, that God has come in physical form. That the Lord is appearing to Abraham as one of these men. The Lord, who is a spirit... God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, but yet he takes this form of a man, this physical form. This is one of the most unique Old Testament texts to describe this divine appearance. God is made visible. He who is invisible is made physical in this man who is in Abraham's presence. Now, we saw something else like this in chapter 15. If you remember, chapter 15 told us that the Lord, uh, he, in the form of the smoking pot, passed through the cut animals in that covenant ceremony. And we are given this idea that God is taking on these appearances. And the word that we use for these divine appearances is, it's called a theophany, and a divine appearance. God in visible, physical form. Now it turns out, if you peek ahead to chapter 19, verse 1, that the Lord is there along with these two other men who are actually, chapter 19, verse 1 says, two angels. That the Lord God in physical form with two angels has come down to earth and later on we'll learn that it's for the purposes of investigating Sodom. But on the way there, he is passing by Abraham's tent. A pre-incarnate, physical, visible God. So if you need evidence for how special Abraham is in the scriptures, this is utterly unique. And it is actually likely this episode in Genesis 18 that the writer of Hebrews has in mind when Hebrews writes, Hebrews 13 verse 2, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware, which is exactly what Abraham is doing doing here but the point is is that God has come to Abraham and notice the contrast remember God came to Adam in the garden in the cool of the day and here God comes to Abraham in the desert in the heat of the day the circumstances are contrasted but God is at work and before we move on past this point, that deserves lingering consideration. Do you see how significant that is to a world that thinks that God is just out there and doesn't care? That God draws near and comes close in visible, physical form. What, is that, what does that say about who God is? What does that say about the kind of God He is and what He values and what we should think about Him? I think it just plainly says this, that, that God delights to be with his people. God delights to be with his people. And do you think about that reality here and now? 
on the Lord's Day, as, as God's people gather together, that God delights for you to be gathered here and for him to be in our presence. That he is pleased with that. But here we see the Lord of heaven and earth eating food at Abraham's table. This picture of fellowship, that God is not distant, that he draws near. This is the only time in the Bible that food is presented to God and it not be taken as sacrifice. All these other places in the Bible, people bring animals to God and they're used as a sacrifice, as a means of approach. But here, God sits down to eat the food that's been presented as this picture of fellowship. And where do we see this reality most clear in the Bible besides this? I mean, this is incredible, but it is a foreshadowing of a reality of what? God coming in human flesh to dwell with us, namely Emmanuel, Christ himself. A pre-incarnate picture of Jesus Christ in Genesis chapter 18. The God who loves to be with his people, who comes to his people because his people on their own will not come to him. God draws them out by his own grace. He loves to be with them. As Jesus says in John 14 verse 23, he says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him. And Jesus says, the father and I will make our home with them. What a thought is that? That God makes his home with you in your life. We speak about the friendship of God. Jesus says that we can be called the friends of God. It is a shame that people have this idea of God, that he is distant and cold and uncaring and uninvolved, unloving. For he is in Jesus Christ, the very picture of the God who loves to dwell with us and make his home with us. Uh, one picture of this that I think is so beautiful, and I want you to have this in mind in preparation for next week as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, but uh, Andrew Bonner was a 19th century Scottish pastor, and one of the things he used to tell his people on the Lord's Day when they celebrated the Lord's Supper is he would say this to them, today, Jesus is walking amongst us. Standing in front of the table, Jesus is walking amongst us and he will stop here at our communion table to see if you have need of him and delights to provide for your needs. But do you think about Jesus that way? A compassionate, loving, fellowshipping God who loves to call you his own and his friend. That's a beautiful picture of God that we must know and linger on, but it is not just that God is far off. We see the friendship of God for sure. He comes near in friendship. But the covenant Lord, as he draws near, he brings with him in his presence a further revelation of what he's doing in Abraham's life. A further explanation of his promises. And so not only are we seeing the friendship of God, but we also see his really utter foolishness at the same time. In verses 9 through 15, God comes near and draws in friendship, but in that friendship reveals something of the foolishness of his plans and purposes because there's after-dinner conversation. And at this time, Abraham still doesn't know who he is entertaining, who he is hosting, the Lord himself. And the one says, verse 9, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? She's, she's in the tent. And God himself speaks in verse 10. 
There is to be for us as readers no obscurity about who's the one speaking there in verse 10. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And and Sarah's within earshot. She's actually sitting behind the one who's speaking here, the Lord himself, in the tent and she laughs. She's not immediately present, but she's within earshot and she laughs when she hears this time next year you will have a son. Of course she laughs, right? Abraham did, remember, in the last chapter? She's doing exactly what Abraham did. She's saying, come on, that can't be true. But it's the exact same thing that Abraham was told. Do you remember back in chapter 17? Chapter 17, verse 16, verse 19, and verse 21. 17, 16, 19, 21. God said, Abraham, your wife, Sarah, will bear you a son. And here, Sarah gets her own version of the news, maybe because Abraham hadn't told her, right? Wouldn't get to pass along news like that. She would have never believed me anyway. Maybe Sarah is hearing it for the first time. And she is caught in this interesting interchange. You laughed. No, I didn't. Come on. Yes, you did. There's this strange conversation. Verse 15, Sarah denied it. I didn't laugh. She was afraid. No, you did that. And you know what's interesting here is that the emphasis seems not to be on this interchange about whether or not you lied. I mean, that's the dialogue, but it doesn't seem to lay at Sarah's feet this burden of sin. You laughed at God. The emphasis seems more to be on the fact of the reality of her natural reaction, doesn't it? It makes sense, perhaps, that you laugh because from your perspective, Sarah, this seems ridiculous. Of course it does. But what God is promising here is not some new fancy promise. It's the same thing that he's been saying since chapter 12, isn't it? That to you, Abraham, I will give to you land, blessing, and the third one is Seed, children, posterity. It's, it's, it's the substance of the Abrahamic promise given to Sarah in her own hearing to confirm to her the very heart of the Abrahamic promises, the seed promised children. Sarah, this will come about by your 90-year-old body. Now, yesterday there was a report, okay, in the news that a 61-year-old grandmother served as the gestational surrogate for her son. To give birth to his son, which is really her grandson. Follow that? Now, there was more to that story, and I don't want to go into it because it was a little too strange, right? But that's something to wrap your mind around. The 61-year-old grandmother serving as the gestational surrogate makes national news by medical innovation, seemingly incredible, and Genesis 18 says, that's nothing. Look at what God is doing here. Staggering beyond belief at the thought that Sarah could only laugh at the thought just like Abraham did. But in the context, God asks this question, verse 14, which is the heart of this section, verse 14. Look at it again. God asks the most important rhetorical question in the universe. He says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? 
This question that's designed to disarm their natural reactions, to get their minds off of their hopeless situation and off of their own limited resources and to fix their mind on the limitless resources and power of their covenant God. If God says, it shall be, is the point of Genesis 18. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, when we read things like that, what we like to do is then say, okay, well, how do I... How do I take verse 14 and apply it to my life? And I think that we should be asking ourselves that question because what does Genesis 18 have to do with with you? What does it have to do with us as Christian believers? Well, we should be asking ourselves, what does this mean, verse 14? But let's first answer the question, what does this not mean? What does verse 14 not mean? When God asks the rhetorical question, is anything too hard for the Lord? That doesn't mean that God will do everything and anything for you just because you say so. Right? God is not our cosmic vending machine. Just because you think enough positive thoughts or do enough things or whatever does not mean that you will somehow obligate God or place him in your debt in such a way that you can say, God, do this because I said so. It doesn't work that way. We understand that, correct? That's very important. That's what it does not mean. But what it does mean when God says, is anything too hard for the Lord? He means this that I will do exactly as I promise because my promise is my word and God will always do what he says. There is nothing too hard for God that he has promised to do that he will not do. That is the story of the Bible, isn't it? The story of the God who does what seems impossible so that we might know that this work could have only been brought about by him. If it were up to us, we would have never accomplished this. The entire narrative of all the scriptures is a God who rescues and redeems to show forth the glory of his grace so that his power might be in awe of and he would be the one who gets the glory so that our eyes would be fixed upon him and our love given to him and our worship ascend up to him that is the point of the bible that's the point actually of a child being promised to a postmenopausal 90 year old woman that can't happen tell that to the virgin teenage girl whom god says You shall bear the savior of the race of this planet. God is working out his plans and purposes to accomplish his promises in the midst of what seems impossible. And that is just as much a reality in Genesis 18 as it is today. And I want us to seal that to our hearts. That his word is tied to his promise. And we should constantly be asking ourselves, what has God promised to us in Jesus Christ? What has God promised you and I that we must know with confidence? Well, one thing is that Jesus is the one who has the authority. Jesus is the one who has the authority to say like he did in Mark 2.5, to say to the paralytic man, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And the people absolutely lost their mind. Nobody can say that except God himself. And God in Jesus Christ looks at you, Christian believer, and says, your sins are forgiven. As many as they may be, as vile as they are, your sins are forgiven. It seems impossible. 
but it's a true word in the gospel. Jesus is the one who can say that. Jesus is the one who says in John 11, verse 25 to 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe in life after death? That's impossible. Apart from the God who reigns over life and death and who opens wide the door of eternal life and says, to you, Christian believer, is eternity. Nothing is too hard for this God. And he is the one who promises us that this life in the forgiveness of our sins and the passageway to eternal life is not just a fantastical promise of hope, but it is also a secure reality because Jesus says in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And all who come to me, I will what? I will never cast out. That if you are in Jesus Christ by faith, that is a place of security. And if it were possible for you to sin your way out of fellowship with God, you and I would have already. But his grace keeps us because this is a God who does the impossible, namely forgives sinners. And this is what is happening. This reality is being sealed to us in foreshadowing promise that a son will come by way of the covenant line to bring about salvation for this race. And this is a more sure reality than the rising and the setting of the sun. And God says, trust it. It seems crazy to you, but it is more sure than anything. Is the gospel too wonderful to be true? It might seem like it. And Jesus says along with what he says to Abraham, is anything too hard for me? And the answer is what? By faith. No, Lord. You are the God who does the impossible and nothing is too hard or too wonderful for you. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That which seems seemingly impossible and incomprehensible lies in it the glory and plans and purposes of God that we are called upon to receive by faith. The God who is not far off, but the God who comes near in covenantal friendship. The God who does not look at what is foolish in the sight of human eyes. The God who does what is foolish in the sight of human eyes in order that those same human eyes might look on him with faith and trust. The friendship of God, the foolishness of God, in the call of the gospel to receive this God as Abraham and Sarah are called upon to trust him. And you and I are called to trust him to do what seems impossible and yet what he has promised. The God who does the impossible by the power of his word. Wonder of wonders is this God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God that is not distant, but who comes near to us, especially in your son, Jesus Christ, who has lived and died and rose again, that we might know the foolishness of the gospel, the forgiveness of sins. Pray, Lord, that you would enable us to be a people of strengthening and growing faith, to bear witness to you in our lives, to trust your word, and to go forth where you call us. And so, Lord, with your grace, smile upon us and give us the confidence that you do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit Edgington 
epc.org. May God bless and keep you.